Welcome to the Discipleship Unplugged podcast. I'm your host, Darren Middleton. I'm the teaching elder at North Geelong Presbyterian. This is season one and episode 10. And today we're going to begin to explore the reformed uh, understanding of the doctrine of election. So let's define our terms. Soteriology is a study of the doctrine of salvation. Uh, the word comes from the Greek word soter, which means salvation. So soteriology is the study of the aspects or the doctrines of salvation, and it covers things like justification or sanctification, as well as controversial uh, doctrines like predestination or what we're going to look at today, election. Moreover, uh, theologians also talk about, when they think about soteriology, the order of that salvation. The Greek, the, the, the Latin word for that called auto salutis. And what it does is they, they take all the various teaching from parts of scripture and they seek to synthesize them and then order them. And so, as reformed Christians who understand that God is sovereign in all things, we seek to order salvation. And the order of that is election calling, external and internal, regeneration, the work of the Spirit, born again, conversion, that is uh, the gifts of the Spirit, repentance and faith, justification, adoption, that is union with Christ, sanctification, glorification, of course, even perseverance. So let's start with the doctrine of election. Uh, This is the doctrine where God chooses to set his love upon certain people. And the Bible calls these people uh, the elect or those who are chosen. For example, in the book of Titus starts by saying that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And Ephesians 1.4 reminds us that we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In in uh, 1 Peter 2.9, we're described as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That we might proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Or Colossians 3.12, we were told to put on then as God's chosen ones, God's elect, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Or in 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, we're told, for we know, what do we know? That we are brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And if all that is true, then, then Paul concludes all of this by saying in Romans eight thirty three, well, then who will bring any charge against God's elect? And so the doctrine of election states that God set his love upon certain people, often referred to in Scripture as the elect or the chosen, and and he did this not because he could foresee in them faith or some virtue that might induce him to love them and save them, but because of his own sovereignty and grace that he chose the people to himself. And that's why Romans 8.28 says, for those whom he foreknew, you know, that he, he set his love on, that he chose, he also predestined to become conformed to that image of his son. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 starts with, 
that is written to the elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God's foreknowledge is the outcome of his omniscient nature. Since God is all-knowing, that is, he knows reality before it's actually real. That he knows every person, uh, every event, every thought, every deed that would come to pass. Now, of course, no Christian denies any of that. No one denies that God is omniscient, that God is sovereign. However, what some suggest is that we should understand God's foreknowledge where he chose, loved, and saved the people to himself as predicated or grounded on what he foreknew about them. In other words, while it is true that God chooses and predestines and saves people to himself, he does so because he peers down the hall of history and he sees their faith and their repentance. Or at least that's the argument by some Christians. And so they would read Romans 8.28 in this way, for those whom he foreknew would believe on Jesus, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And so they don't see the ground of election uh, being God's will and pleasure, but actually the actions of humans in the future that he foresees their faith, that they will believe. Now, while it's true that God's foreknowledge does indeed foresee even our repentance and faith, it's not the ground or the cause of our salvation. For example, uh, in Acts chapter 13, verse 38, we read about how the Gentiles believed the word of God, and then Luke notes that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, because believing is the consequence, not the cause of God's appointing to life. That's why Jesus said in John 6, 44, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Or uh, a few verses on in John 6, 65, where he preached something very similar, and he says, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's also why he says that those who reject him uh, primarily has in mind here the Jews, unbelieving Jews. He says in John chapter 10, verse 26 and following, he says, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You see, he's saying that only those whom he loved and chose to be saved, his sheep, it is only his sheep who will hear his voice, only his sheep who will hear his voice and repent and believe. That's why he could say in John chapter 15, verse 26, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Clearly then, uh, the scripture tells us that the ground of our election is not anything that we do, but God's sovereign will and pleasure. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 5, listen carefully. For he chose us in him, that is Christ, before the creation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless in his sight. Okay, so therefore, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. 
In other words, what was the basis? What is the ground? What is the foundation in which he chooses and predestines and adopts? It's not anything we have done. He tells you why. It's in accordance with his pleasure and will, God's pleasure and God's will, and not anything that he foresees in us. And that's the whole argument of Romans 9 when Paul is discussing why Israel do not believe, why the Jews have rejected the Messiah. And he gives the example of the brothers, Jacob and Esau, as an example of God's sovereignty in action. He says in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, though they were not born, yet born, or had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Often people say, well, how could God hate Esau? Now, the question is, how could God love uh, Jacob? Jacob's a mummy's boy. And yet what he's saying is, before Jacob did anything, or Esau did anything, before they were even born, before they did good or bad, there is nothing that God considered in them or in their actions. None of that was a ground for his choices. He's saying, but before all of this, so that God's purpose of election might stand, he chose to love Jacob, but Esau, he hated. And the conclusion is obvious enough in verse 16. So then, if all that's true, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And this was in order that God's purpose of election might continue. He then draws the conclusion in verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so those whom he elects, those who are chosen in eternity past, he also predestines. It comes as a package. And so Ephesians 1.11 says that we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so predestination is the outworking of God's good pleasure and will in time and space. In fact, it is the ordering of all events in time and space to unfold his eternal purposes in salvation. Ephesians says that he predestines all things according to the counsel of his will, your wife, your children, your job, your home, even your mother-in-law, your successes and failures, your health and sickness, joys and sorrows, he predestines all things. That's why Job 42.2 acknowledges in all of his sufferings that I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And so once a father sets his love on someone, once he foreknows them, he also predestines them, he, he wills all things to the counsel of his will to bring about his purposes. And so all of history, from the first sunrise to the last, every activity, every contingency, every, every word and every action, every thought and every person, every sermon, every day, every moment, everywhere, everything is predestined by him who works all things according to the counsel of his will because salvation is a divine work from beginning to end. Now, some will say that election creates, or this doctrine of election creates 
a moral problem, uh, why does God only save some? Now, the first thing I want to say to that is you, you, it makes no logical sense that you object to the doctrine of election by actually appealing to it. Because if election is not true, then in reality you have the same problem. Because if everyone is not saved, and clearly according to the Bible they are not, you still got to left with a question of why. Some some will say that that people choose to reject God, and and that's the reason. But why does God allow them to perish just to honour their their choices of rejection? You know, free will, so called free will. I imagine if someone said to me, "Let me drown." Are you going to honour their choice, even if you could save them? And even if you did honour their choice and you let them drown, doesn't that create another moral problem? Look, we need to accept that there is mystery here because it is true. Could God save all people? Yes, he could. He is sovereign. But he chooses not to. And we're not sure of all the reasoning of that. But here's what we are sure of. This is what we do know. Is God good? Yes. Does the Lord of all the earth do what is right? Yes. And given his holy nature and his omniscience, then there are things that he understands and things that he knows and things that will unfold that gives him a full picture that we do not possess. And so things will unfold in such a way we can be confident of that, that God's goodness and grace and justice and mercies will be vindicated on that last day. Now, other peoples have concerns about this doctrine of election. They, they say that if, if the doctrine of election is right, why do we even bother to evangelize then? You know, it's all about frozen chosen. Well, and for that matter, why do we even pray? If God is sovereign, if God has already chosen and predestined his people, the elect, what's the point? And again, such a concern is not a very well thought out one. If God is sovereign, well, let's assume that he isn't sovereign. Let's assume that 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 things do not unfold according to the counsel of his will. Isn't that much more terrifying, much more concerning? I mean, how random would life be? Uh, in a sense, life would be up to us. Salvation would rest on us. Uh, that would be far more weight than any of us could possibly bear. Imagine being a parent where God is not sovereign. Imagine if you messed up your parenting and your children didn't believe. That'd be on you. What if you didn't share the gospel when you should have? Are there people in hell because of you? Are your kids lost because you're an inconsistent parent? No. God's sovereignty in election and predestination is actually a comfort to us. And so actually our work, uh, the way we speak and pray, are actually the means by which God's will is done on earth. Our, our prayers, our witnessing, our worship, our conversations, our hospitality, it is all actually the unfolding of God's eternal purposes in times and space, what the Bible calls predestination. We are the means of it. In fact, that should not intimidate us. That should encourage us. It should motivate us because we cannot fail. 
Christ will build his church. In Acts 18, when Paul was being attacked in Corinth and he was feeling afraid, God speaks to him in uh, Acts 18, verse 9 to 10. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so Paul stays in Corinth for another 18 months, fearlessly proclaiming the gospel, knowing that God had many elect in that city, many who were chosen, many who were predestined. And Paul is going to be the means that is going to draw those people to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel and through the work of the Holy Spirit, who through his ministry will draw many to himself. And so, in fact, this doctrine of election, it is an encouragement to us and it should spur us on to labor faithfully, knowing it is God who works in and through us for his own glory. This is Discipleship Unplugged. Blessings and grace to you. Until next time, goodbye.